Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 667 with my guest, Elise Cizek. Uh, my name's Paul Gilmartin, and uh, this here is a mental illness happy hour. It's a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our heads. Uh, this place is uh, not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. You've been warned. Did you enjoy 666? Did you make it through it? Those some some dark, dark surveys. And those were only culled from the first one-fifth of the surveys that have been uh, filled out. Uh, mostly the shame and secret surveys. I think we we also had some awful some moments and some other stuff in there. But uh, yeah, some people were like, man, that was too heavy for me. Some people felt that I was uh, maybe a little too glib about it. Some people wanted to hear dark music behind it. And I would say the majority of people that weighed in on it um, were happy that I did it and uh, got through the whole thing. And is enjoy a right verb to use? But yeah, enjoyed it. Found an odd comfort in it. Um... I knew there was something I wanted to say. Uh, I've vaguely mentioned in the past couple of months, maybe the last three or months or so, that I made the ethical decision uh, to part ways with a major source of income for the podcast. It was over half of the income of this podcast. And I refrained from mentioning what that source of income was um, because I wanted to tread carefully for legal reasons. Um, but I can now uh, say that uh, that source of income was BetterHelp, uh, who had been a monthly sponsor, I'm sorry, a weekly sponsor since 2017. Uh, I plan on putting out a mini episode uh, going into more detail. Um, and I will definitely withhold some stuff, uh, because I, I, um, uh, how, how do I, how do I put it? Uh, I don't want to, uh, share anything that isn't necessary for you to understand why I walked away from that relationship and why I've been asking for money since then to help keep the podcast going because we are running at a deficit now and um some of you have been signing up for patreon and i really really appreciate that um we are at 788 uh paid members it's funny it used to the number of members used to uh just be who are paid and now on the front of the uh patreon page it just shows the number of total members because there are people who are members but um, have stopped contributing. I suppose they're they're still consi considered uh, uh, members, but we have 788, and we need to get to about 1,500. So we're a little more than halfway uh, towards uh, towards breaking even for the podcast, and I'm definitely trying to look into other sources of income and one of the decisions that I have had to made had to make which I did not want to do uh, is to have announcer 
read ads within the podcast. I had declined doing those because I found it to be jolting when, you know, you're hearing my voice or a guest's voice. And then all of a sudden there's a two second pause. And then you hear usually a loud ad for something. But I have, uh, had to make the decision to begin including those. And I, you know, I think you guys understand, but there's a small part of me that is like, oh, it's going to be too jolting and uh, people are going to leave and I'll die alone in a ditch with no teeth. Am I catastrophizing? Maybe. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by a hyphen. And they write, please read more dark surveys. I cried to it for the first time in years and needed it desperately. Thank you for that. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself another hot bath and about her depression. She writes, "Uh, depression from marijuana withdrawal makes me feel like a stupid, useless, demoralized piece of hammered dog shit. I like that you go hammer on the dog shit. And then a snapshot from her life. I'm starting a new job at a drug-free workplace next week. I failed my first drug test, but they agreed to let me test again two weeks after my last use. This brings an end to a decade of using weed to cope. Now fucking what? I wanted to read that because I wanted to say this could be an opportunity for you to find new coping mechanisms. And, you know, there to me, there's nothing wrong with marijuana as a recreational thing to, to do, maybe to, to celebrate. But when we use it to escape our life or avoid our feelings or avoid confronting truths, it, it, it's, it's a pretty low-grade tool to, to cope. And I used it for fucking decades. And I'm... And I'm glad that I don't use it anymore for that. I don't use it at all, actually, because I'm an, I'm an addict and I don't know how to do uh, drug use or alcohol halfway. So I totally abstained from it. But um, if I could use it recreationally and not use it as a uh, coping mechanism, um, I, would, I would be doing it. So all of that is to say this can be an opportunity for you to begin to face feelings that you were running from. Just the thought. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, did I change or did the world change? And she writes, how do you deal with it when the surroundings of life is what is challenging? A lot of mental challenges can be related to trauma or destructive dynamics in ourself stemming from experiences or simply genetics. But how does one deal with it when it's actual things going on in the world and in life that's keeping me awake at night? And she's writing from Norway. I always love uh, hearing from people uh, around the world. And it's so funny because in my mind, when I imagine escaping from America and the gun violence and the foreign policy and the cult of more 
I imagine going to places like Sweden, Denmark, or Norway. And uh, thank you for the reminder that there is really no place to escape it. You know, in, in recovery, they call it doing a geographic where we expect, and certainly moving to a different place can change the amount of bullshit around us. But I don't know if there's any place where we're not going to run into people that drive us crazy or policies that drive us crazy. And for me, the serenity prayer sums it all up. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Because a lot of times I don't know the difference. And I find myself getting super resentful at things that I can't control because I want control. And I have the feeling I'm not alone in that. I think control is one of the most pervasive issues for us. And how, how do we cope with the fact that we are in many ways helpless about the things around us? Well, we can write our representatives. I did that yesterday. We can pray, we can meditate. Uh, I pray for the people who I'm feeling rage at. Um, sometimes that helps, sometimes it doesn't. I pray for them to have peace and love in their lives. Um, being of service helps. Sometimes just biting into a wine glass and just chewing the shards helps. I don't know if I can recommend that, but for five seconds, until I get to the emergency room, oh, I'm in heaven. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Chrissy. And uh, she battles bulimia. And she writes, I hate going to the grocery store knowing all the food and money spent will make its way straight to, the, to my toilet. That has got to be hard. That has got to be really hard, and I know a lot of people experience the same thing. That's got to be hard. This is from the Love Survey, filled out by our friend, that black girl. And she writes, I love the snap sound made by a fresh nori when my teeth bite into hand-rolled sushi. Yes, that is a good one. I love the glide of a number 2.5 medium Dixon Ticonderoga pencil against a printout of a Thursday, Friday, or Saturday New York Times crossword. That is awesome. That's, that is the kind of love that when I created this survey, I hope to read. The ones that you know other people probably aren't going to fill out. But when you hear it, even if you've not experienced it, you're like, oh, that sounds so soothing. And I like the word Ticonderoga. I love when my husband and I are both working from home and I can hear him laughing and joking with his coworkers through the wall as they try to troubleshoot end users' software problems. I do love the the laughter of a friend or loved one. I love the sound of a thunderstorm against the window and the roof at 3 a.m. when I'm barely awake and still trying to figure out if it's real or not. 
I love the way that many dogs are unapologetic about getting you to rub their butts. Herbert used to do that. And then he would look up and he had these these little bottom teeth with gaps in them where a tooth had fallen out. And uh, we would call that his baby corn teeth. And he would look up and he had a little bit of an underbite. So it'd be like like he was thanking you by showing you his, his baby corn teeth with the gaps in there. I love the smell of fresh rosemary. I love that the older I've gotten, the less I am afraid to die and the more willing and able I am to tell myself to live, damn it. Those are great. Thank you for those. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself K.S. And about his depression, he writes, like waves on a beach, sometimes softly lapping, sometimes crashing and destroying everything in their path, constantly fluid and changing but never ending. That is a good one. But his anxiety, generalized anxiety, feels like a bee buzzing in my ear. When it gets closer, it gets louder and more distracting. Otherwise, it just softly buzzes in the background like a snippet of white noise. Thank you for those. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself C. She writes, are people only allowed to complete a survey one time? Curious because I wanted to complete the struggle in a sentence survey, but SurveyMonkey keeps popping up and saying that I've already taken it. I looked into that and I have a struggle in a sentence set so that people can take it multiple times. I wonder if it was a different survey that is, um, because in my mind, I've set them all uh, for people to be able to take them multiple times. So if you stumble across, if you wouldn't mind going back and checking uh, and see what survey it is uh, that you're getting that message on, uh, I can I can look into that. And yes, that was me uh, pushing responsibility back to you because I'm lazy. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Sulky Wallows. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? I'm a stupid, bad person for leaving my narcissistic ex-husband because the law doesn't recognize emotional abuse. And now... Uh, they're alone with him without my protection 50% of the time. I've failed them already and I should just kill myself and let him win. Uh, I can't uh, imagine what it must be like when, when you have an ex that you know is probably actively damaging your kid. And one of the reasons I wanted to read this is, is I can tell you I know many people who grew up where they had a toxic caregiver or family member, but they also had one who was nurturing and stable and safe. And that went a really, really long way towards helping them turn out okay. Not, you know, not that they don't have struggles or damage or parts that need healing, but you can, you can be the opposite of that. And I really, really hope that you are aware of not placing them in the middle. And I don't know what that would look like because I'm not a parent and certainly not a uh, parent that shares custody. But, you know, 
engaging with a therapist might be a good, a good way to deal with that or a support group around people who have a toxic ex that has custody. These are some loves um, filled out by our friend Little Guy Eating Good. He writes, I love buying tamales from the lady with the cart outside the train station on a cold Chicago morning. Only a few dollars for home-cooked goodness. I stuffed the tamales in my pockets to keep me warm from my train ride. Oh, I love that. And he writes, I love food and all the long-held human traditions of companionship that surround food. Those are awesome. Thank you for those. This is from the Fear Survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Jenny. And she writes, I'm starting to recognize that almost everything I struggle with is basically about me having a lot of fear. It's fear all over the place. I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder many years ago, but it didn't appear that clear to me where the anxious thoughts came from. Now it's clear as day because I can sort of see the fear every time I'm in my worrisome, ruminating state of mind or when I'm unable to sleep at night, when my thoughts are spinning over and over again on the same things. This is bad. My life didn't turn out good. This won't end well. That was a bad decision, etc., etc. The core is this all turned out beyond wrong for me and I won't be able to fix it. And what are fueling those thoughts and feelings is fear, pure, cold-blooded fear of me doing the wrong thing, making the wrong decisions, and generally being a complete failure. It's the fear it fuels this, especially in the night, like now when I'm waking up full of fear of how me, my life, and the world turned out. It's very self-centered, I know. But it feels like the fear is never going to leave me alone. It's like being afraid of ghosts as a kid. It's just there, terrifying and ungraspable, taking all the attention. I guess what could ease the fear would be a kind and loving partner that could hold me in the night. I think that could really help. But then again, I'm fearful I will never find that partner. So there you go. My mind dancing around at 4.30 a.m. in a headspace filled with fear. Thank you for filling that out. And, you know, I, I want to... Oh, and she uh, also asked, uh, could you sell some t-shirt merch? Actually make those t-shirts with the quotes or mugs with a quote on it. Um, we do have merch available and there are a variety of of t-shirts and um and there are mugs the mugs don't have quotes but it has the show's logo and actually they have the old show logo on them or maybe there are ones available now that have the new show logo but um yes a variety of of t-shirts so just go to our website mentalpod.com and you'll see a button that's a kind of a combination i think it says support the show and so then you can either donate or buy stuff, but um, getting back to the thing about the fear, man, it's a motherfucker, and there are periods of my life where it feels like it rules me, and I got to break out all the tools, you know, got to break out all the tools, very similar to the things I don't have control over, because very often, um, my biggest fear is lack of control, and the fear that it's all it's all doom. It's all going to get worse. Let's take a quick break. And then finally, this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself unofficially Italian. 
He struggles with codependency and a snapshot from his life. I had my car broken into once while I was parked at a friend's house. I was going to drive her to the airport, but we ordered pizza first. When it was time to leave for the airport, I saw the window on the driver's side door was smashed. The stereo was crudely torn out of the console, the trunk was open, and I was missing a few tools. My friend and I were staring at the mess made to my car, and the first thing I said when I looked to her was, Are you okay? My consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or... With my Barbies. <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself We'll be right back after this (laughs) I'm here with Elise Cizek And you were... Highly, highly recommended by a former guest of the podcast and friend of mine, Jimmy Franzo. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, you got you to gotta get Elise on your show. <laughs> so impression. talented. She's, she's turned her life around and she's, she's deep and she's lovely and just wonderful. You got to go see her one woman show. And I was like, all right. Um, so I got tickets to see your uh, one woman show, which mm-hmm. is coming up in like a week. Yeah. The, yes. Is it August uh, 5th? Two, oh gosh, it's a week and a half from now. August 5th. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, my girlfriend and I are going to go. No pressure. <gasps> but you fucking better deliver. I know, right? <laughs> uh, he's a, he, like, I think he's single handedly sold out that Saturday. Um, he, it's, I've never had a better promoter in my life. He is. <laughs> like when he puts his mind to something, and if you guys yeah. have never listened to the episode with Jimmy Franzo, and he used to be known as Jamie as well, uh, so Jamie slash Jimmy Franzo, uh, it is a listener favorite and one of my favorites because uh, Jimmy Jimmy goes deep. He does. Jimmy is mm-hmm. a beautiful, intense so he won't mind me sharing this. I think I might have even shared it on the uh, on the episode that he did. But the first time he he met me, he he was struggling to get sober, and he walked up to me, and it's like he wanted to tell on himself. He said, "I am the most full of shit person you will ever meet, mm-hmm. and I just want you to know that to you know kind of keep keep him on his toes to because mm-hmm. you know sometimes." Uh, his his i think rattling around his head is i'm not enough i need to be more mm-hmm. oh i have no idea what no that feels idea like what neither to, do me you, neither do <laughs> me neither but um he's yeah. just such a lovely transparent person and mm-hmm. i and i'm glad he uh recommended that you yeah. that you come on where do we start? Oh my goodness, where do we start? Uh, you you write poetry. You got yes. two books out. One one is called Naked or Nudity. Uh, nudity. Nudity. nudity and the other the one is one. called Watermelon. Mm-hmm. Um, you're an actor, a writer, uh, a sober person. 
um, what, what, musician, yeah, musician, and writing music for a long time too. So we can start with the show. So yeah, let's um, start with I that. have I have this show called Pickled, and it's a one woman show that I wrote um, out of resentment. Actually, it's really funny. Um, I I used to perform music quite a bit, and um, I got sort of entangled with some people uh, in in sort of this one scene that ended up being a really unhealthy place for me to feel free to share my music and to be myself. And so I set it aside for a while. And last year I decided I wanted to come back and I wanted to do it Mm. and I wanted to play another show. And I just wanted to get back in front, like on the piano in front of some people. And it was just going to be me. I used to perform with a band and I wanted to set all of that aside and just be me with my piano back to the way it was when I first started. Nice, nice and pure. Yeah. And then, um, the venue that I went to initially said, yes, we'd love to have you, but never picked a date. And I finally asked them like, hey, so like, what's going on with this? I'd really love to get in. And they're like, oh, your Instagram following's kind of small. <laughs> and I took that so personally. And I was like, that's it. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make something so big and something that's so me. And you can't deny me that way. And um so at the time, I had been doing quite a bit of like commercial work. And so I had a little bit of money in my pocket and I rented out a theater and I wrote a one woman show. And if I, I wanted to take up that space and putting it on last year was such a, a hugely cathartic experience um, because the story that I wanted to tell, I use a lot of my existing work. So my existing poetry, things that I've written for my, uh, that are in my two books and outside of that as well. Um, and some songs that never got recorded that I just, that I wrote in a, in a place in my life where I was having so many overwhelming feelings and I didn't know what else to do. So I had to create something and they were all telling the same story because I, I found a pattern, something that I do all the time. Uh, and it was it's really around this idea of wanting to be the perfect person for somebody in order to be loved and feeling like I needed to get in order for me to feel like I was enough and like I was OK. I needed to find someone who was going to give me that. And in that way and walking through the world, um, you know, for a long time, like you know, my drinking and, and my using and all of that, uh, it was really cloudy. But once I got sober, it became really clear that I'm just looking to fill this this God-shaped hole. And I was looking to relationships to do it. And relationships is in quotation marks. <laughs> <laughs> um, random hookups here. Okay. That's what I thought, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah, like anyone who would give me attention and, and physical attention and things like that. So... <clears throat> You know, that's a really mm-hmm. common theme with my, my guests, especially the female guests mm-hmm. on this podcast, is that it becomes a currency. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if they might not want to be sexual with someone, or at least at that point in the relationship be sexual, but there is a fear that if they don't give the man what he wants, they'll they'll leave. Sure. Either they'll leave or they'll take it anyway. And in my experience in it, you know, this is something that is a, it's, it's touched on very gently in the show. Um, but that's part of my experience where, um, I made myself available to people. And sometimes when I was not making myself available, they would assume that I was. And when I would say, no, I'm not, no, not tonight or whatever. Um, I, I couldn't hold firm to that. No, 
um, firm enough to protect myself and to keep myself safe. And, um, and, and what do you mm-hmm. s- specifically mean by that, that, mm-hmm. that you, um, changed what you said to them mm-hmm. or they blew right past the signs that you weren't into it and it was a violation? Uh, I've had, I've experienced with both. Yeah. Okay. With both. And, um, and in doing that, in, yeah. uh, separating you know myself and my soul from my body in order to feel like i can be embraced by someone or loved by someone um saying like well if i just put myself through this then i can like i can leave my body for a minute i don't have to be here and they can just take what they need and maybe that they'll want me to stay around if i do that you know and it it was such a deep wound and such a sad place to be and i didn't you know once I got sober, it stopped being something that I could put up with. Mm-hmm. And um, I love there's this uh, this little analogy about change where um, I can't remember who it was, but somebody this like incredible speaker talked about it. So I'm, I'm plagiarizing, but I don't mm-hmm. know from who. <laughs> it's OK. I do it all um, the time. Well, not that that's OK, but. <laughs> but if there say you're um, you walk out of your house every day and you walk out of your house, you turn right. Mm-hmm. And you, as you're walking, you step in a puddle and you get to work and you realize your foot's wet and you're angry at work because your foot is wet. And so the next day you walk out of your house, you turn right and you walk into the same puddle. And after you step in the puddle, you're like, oh, my my foot's wet because I stepped in this puddle. And then the day after that, you walk through, you would like walk out the door, turn right and you see the puddle in front of you and you step in it anyway. And... There's so many different parts of change where it's like little bits of awareness where you can Mm -hmm. say, this is making me uncomfortable. And you try to pinpoint exactly where it's coming from. Um, And like, what if instead, you know, you can can go all the way back. You can resent yourself for not stepping in the puddle. You can wish that you like you can miss how it felt like because it was so familiar to have your foot wet. Um, Or you can step out the door and turn left and see what happens that way. But until you get to that place where you can turn a completely different direction at the very beginning, um, there's so much ickiness in the change. And a lot of what I like to talk about in my work and in my poetry is being in that place of awareness, you know, where I can say, I know that this is something that needs to change. I know that I'm uncomfortable and I'm the one doing this to myself. But... Sometimes I don't notice it until I'm, you know, on my way to somebody's house in the middle of the night saying, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. But then I go there anyway. And, you know, a lot of these behaviors have changed. And over, especially over the past couple of years, I've watched myself completely evolve into a woman who doesn't show up there, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. Um, or who does. And, and is at least I'm, you know, making decisions that I know are for myself and, not sort of like blindly following wherever I can get the most attention or wherever I can feel the most like just this like momentary bit of of love and specialness before that person disappears and goes off on their own and I realize that they never cared about me in the first place yeah um and through that process and you know in my poetry I write about this a lot which is all the icky feelings you know um I am sure that like a lot of women will identify with this, but like, you know, I've been on so many dates with guys that I'm in no way attracted to simply because I'm like, well, it's something to do. (laughs) 
Is it, <laughs> is it ever that you don't want to hurt their feelings? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and also because I, when I really get down to it, I don't want to be a person that hurts somebody's feelings. I've stayed in relationships for way too long because I didn't want to be a bad girlfriend. I didn't want to be the kind of girlfriend that breaks up with their partner, you know. And then in those cases, this is like back back in the day, it was easier for me to be the kind of girlfriend that cheats or the kind of girlfriend who lies than it is to be the kind of girlfriend who says, I don't love you anymore. And had you, when did you make the connection between the not standing up for yourself and the cheating mm. and the lying and seeing that one was feeding the other? Oh, man. When did I see it? Yeah. Um, probably in tiny glimpses over many years. And it started only really making itself apparent to me within the past, I would say, five years. Um, I've been been sober and doing active work um, to stay that way and, and in my recovery and working on my mental health for um, about seven and a half years now. Um, and that work... I've discovered a lot of patterns and I can see a pattern. Like I said, like you can see a pattern and not change it right? and you can have awareness of it. And I like to imagine that like, you know, there are a lot of things that I can, I can just completely turn over and say like, Hey universe, I don't know how to handle this. Can you handle this for me? Um, and it's sort of like when you have a, uh, if you have like a giant piece of furniture in the middle of your room and you bruise your shin on it every day, and you can complain about it and you can say, oh, this thing, I need, like, I hate this thing. Um, but until you realize that it's something that can be moved and you're willing to let it go and to release it, you're going to keep banging your shit on it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, boys, you know, addiction, the number one mm-hmm. thing at the top of the list. Yeah. Yeah, you know? exactly. And I, denial is so easy. It's too. so easy. There's nobody we yeah. lie to as much as ourselves. Right. Nobody. And whose lies am I going to believe? Right. <laughs> I don't believe any. I, it's so hard for me to trust that, like, I, I don't I don't trust anybody, you know, that not initially. And it's right. a lot easier for me to do it now. Um, what, what were but, your um, apprehensions mm-hmm. coming in today to record? Mm. What were fears? Yeah. Oh my anxieties, gosh, and and do not do not hold back. Massive I, imposter syndrome. I've looked at the other people that you've have had on this podcast and listened to their wisdom and their experiences, their their beautiful perspectives on the things that they've experienced, and being able to tell their story concisely. And mm. um, and I was uh, my first thought was like, like Jimmy's such a nice guy. <laughs> you're recommending me for this i've just you know yeah i've like published a couple of books and i have got a couple albums out and yeah i have this like show that i've done and yeah i've been doing this work for seven and a half years but none of that stuff matters because all i think about is like that i you know maybe had a meltdown a couple of days ago and cried really hard and i feel like i'm not working hard enough at any point Mm-hmm. And that there's nothing that like what kind of authority do I have to like be talking about my own story? Like as I'm saying this, like obviously That's, this is so silly, yeah. but but in my head it makes so much sense. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the one that I tell myself all the time is, you're not even doing life right. Who are you to talk? <laughs> Who are you to open your mouth look at all these mistakes you make look Mm. at this to-do list that's got spider webs on it (laughs) you know (laughs) and also there's always the fear whenever you put your story out there or you know are are speaking from a place of like real honesty 
um, when it gets out into the universe, you know, you never know who's going to be picking up on that yeah. or who might take it as, um, you know, like someone who may hate me and wants mm. to like take every word that I say and pick it apart and use it as evidence for how horrible, horrible of a person I am. And so there's a little bit of that. You left out and then tell other people it. And oh, then yeah. Oh, have no, that, of course. And then maybe multiply. Even, yeah. And then you're unpopular Def- oh, and yeah. friendless. Yeah. Or cancel me. Cancel. Uh, oh, I've, yeah. I've written so much about that whole concept. And I think it's so interesting that we mm. think that that's possible to cancel a person. Because <laughs> you can't. I mean, I mean, you can definitely cancel their ability to make income and you can de- continue yeah. the life that they're that they're leading. But yeah, in you terms can de-platform of, and you can yeah, shame, yeah. but you cannot cancel a person. Yeah, and um, you know, not that I'm by any means defending anything that anyone has done that they've been publicly shamed for. Like I, the only thing is that I, um. I've learned in my own life that I've made so many mistakes and I've done a lot of stupid shit. Give, give us some greatest hits. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm not going to go there. Um, okay. But I've, I've done some stupid shit and I have hurt some people. Yeah. And I noticed that a lot of a lot of times when someone will like take a, you know, like a a screenshot of a text message and make it public or they talk about their story in in Mm -hmm. a public, um, you know, like arena where like on, on, you know, social media and telling everyone like this is something that happened and this is something that this person did. Um, Obviously, there are some things that are really, really fucked up that people have done. Right. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. And. Um, and I am someone who will always believe whoever's come for, coming forward, like especially I, I believe women, you mm-hmm. know, um, the thing that I do take pause with, though, um, is asking the why. And also the first thing that I hear in my this is how my brain works. What do like, you mean? Uh, mm-hmm. Pause with asking the why with, um, with the the which person asking the why you asking yourself the why? Like the, taking a moment to just pause and and look at this person coming out about this scenario in this situation. Like, I want to know more. I see. You making, ask yourself why yeah, they're doing this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's also not, you know, not in any way like a matter of judgment. I I know that for myself, because I've done so many like really awful things to people and the person that I am today is not someone who would do those things, but that right. was still me. Right. And I own that. Um, and that's a really hard thing to make peace with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, I'm I'm really grateful that in a lot of the communities that I'm in, that there's space for me to do that, mm-hmm. for me to, to, to have, like, to know those things about myself and the things that I've done, and then to be able to walk into a space where I still know that I am deserving of love. Right. And... There are, you know, if like a story comes out about some someone something that someone tweeted in 2013, <laughs> you know, um, I dare you to look at my tweets from 2013. <laughs> I deleted almost all of them, but like, you know, that was that was me at the time in 2013. You know, sitting up by myself at a bar after hours, not talking to anybody else, wishing that they would give me their drugs and then drunk texting myself via Twitter. You know, it was it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing and sad 
And the thing about, you know, with social media now, we have these snapshots of places that we are when, you know, I'll have a feeling for five minutes and I can let it go. And I can have a, a deep, deep fear and be in that place that I'm, my fear is activated and I'm activated and I'm, I'm triggered by whatever it is that's going on. And I will maybe say the wrong thing or act in the wrong way. And then I have 30 seconds to think about it. I'm like, whoa, I, I don't like that I just did that. And doing what I can to to make amends or to not take that action in the first place now. Mm-hmm. But before I was given those tools, I was, you know, acting out all the time and you know, if I were to look back at, at scenarios that I was in, situations that I was in, the way that I acted, of course, I would never do that again. You know, and there uh, there are things that I'm I don't have the opportunity to make amends for, that I have to simply allow myself self forgiveness for. That's a hard one. Oh God, it's awful. I have nightmares about it all the time. Once a month, I have the same dream. <laughs> you know, and um, and in in that. I I have a big space in my heart um, for people who do bad things. I know that that's probably going to get me canceled more than anything else. But it's not it's not because I think that um, that they you know deserve the same kind of like grace and attention and coddling and all of that. That someone not coddling that's a bad word, but comfort, um, acknowledgement, and empathy that someone who is a victim of something deserves. They deserve. Yes. They they need to be seen and heard, and and I'm right there with that. And I also fully believe that it is possible for people to change because I've seen it within me. Right. And if I know that that's possible within me, then I know it's possible with others because I'm no different. And in compassion, there's not a finite amount of compassion. Mm-hmm. It's like you yeah. can be heartbroken that a serial killer mm-hmm. killed someone and you can also be sad for the little boy that grew into the serial killer, the little boy that was tortured or whatever mm-hmm. it was that there, happened. There's and space yes. for both of it. And I I will give my attention to a victim more than I'll give my yeah, attention to, I think that's to normal. that for sure. But I also do believe that there is some kind of space for that. I don't. I just can't walk around hating people. I don't have right. that kind of energy. I can give you some tips. <laughs> It takes a lot got, to walk around hating people all the time. I've got it really down to an efficient thing that will. <laughs> I learned how to save. I learned how to hate two people at once. Ooh, which nice. yeah, yeah, it Wait, saves a lot. It's one of you. It's yes. <laughs> but when, when you know, I've always been fascinated by the darkness of mm-hmm. personalities and mm-hmm. serial killers and Sicarios and all that kind of shit, and I I always find a part of myself. Um, I don't know if empathizing is maybe too strong of a word, mm-hmm. but seeing the humanity in mm-hmm. somebody that does monstrous things because I know they weren't probably born that way. Maybe some mm-hmm. are. Maybe there are some psychopaths where it's just a biological thing and they've never had mm-hmm. any empathy. But it, um, it when I see society want to completely dispose of someone without us reflecting as a society and saying, hey, if if we have any kind of control or influence in reducing this from happening again, mm-hmm. what, let's talk about it. What what can what we do? Like? Mm-hmm. Can we interview that person? And, and, and probably nine times out of 10, it's fruitless. Mm-hmm. And they're going to try totally. to manipulate it Absolutely. to, you know, get goodies in prison or, or whatever. Yeah. But isn't it isn't it worth it to 
at least take an interest in why these forest fires are breaking out rather than just saying all fires are terrible mm-hmm. and anybody that started them should die or live on an island. I I want to dial it away from serial killers because that's not my personal experience. Um, and I don't feel comfortable talking about it just because I don't, you know, because I haven't been... Um, you know, close to anything, anything like that besides like an entertainment, but which is really messed up for me to say. Um, But I wanted to bring it to something like along the lines of a lot of social justice and and Mm -hmm. things that, um, you know, will happen in a daily conversation where someone will say something wrong, where they'll say some their their perspective on something is really limited. And it is coming from a place of ignorance. And rather than malice, rather than malice. Yeah, the the malice exists, you know, and I also believe that a lot of the malice comes from ignorance also. Yeah. Um, If you really understand somebody and you're really close with someone, you'll start to see the perspective. But if you don't have those, if you don't have people that are different from you within your inner circle, you're never going to have that opportunity. And because of the way the country is set up, it's very rare that we actually are able to make community with people that have different beliefs or different ideas of the world than we do. Um, And because of the way that I grew up, so I, I grew up in, uh, in Wisconsin, in a very small town, about seven thousand people. Which one? Oh, I'm from Chicago, and I used to do really? stand up. Oh my all gosh. Throughout Wisconsin. Yeah. Okay, I grew up right outside of Lake Geneva. Oh yeah, yeah, it's beautiful up it there. It is beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. I love it. I love to visit there in the summertime. And um, my my experience though was when I was growing up there that I I felt different because you don't see a lot of six foot tall biracial women there. <laughs> I was actually the only one. Um, but I, I, maybe there was one more somewhere in, in the county. Um, but anyway, in, in my experience, I felt really like othered. And I also, also found myself wanting to fit in with the girls that I thought were really popular in my school. And none of them looked like me. And because I wanted to fit in with them and I wanted to be just like them. And there were a lot of things about myself and my, you know, personal like racial identity and things like that that I started to press away and like I don't want don't see that part of me I want you to like see the part of me that you like and allowed myself to um to endure things that I don't like for example I let a lot of the girls in my school like touch my hair um when I was like in high school and anytime I would wear my hair down they would like always put their hands in it and I didn't like that at all but I thought well at least they're being nice to me and they're not making fun of me for my hair um what did it feel like in your body when they would when they would touch your hair would you like your skin crawl would you get Mm -hmm. I mean it's an uncomfortable feeling yeah yeah and it's also I mean I don't like I'm, I'm so averse to being just to being like casually like touched yeah. Um, like just, you know, unless it's someone that I really care about or a dear friend, if it's a stranger that puts their hand on my shoulder, I will, I will jump, you know, right. I, I flinch at that. I don't like it. Um, and you know, having people do that and like even my teachers, you know, things like that. Um, and they were never doing it out of a place of malice. They were never yeah. doing it because they wanted to make me uncomfortable or to belittle mm-hmm. me. And I know that. Um, but it was a microaggression. It was something that made me feel really uncomfortable and really othered. Um, and there are like so many other things, like anytime the topic of like black history came up, like everyone in the classroom would turn around and, you know, look at like me or one of the five other other people of color in my, in my class. And so it was like they're very othering. And when a lot of the 
um, like especially around like 2020, uh, when conversations about race were arising, I started seeing like post George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the protests were happening and Black Lives Matter. And and I started seeing people that had actively been a part of that, where they had touched me or said a joke to me or said, like, oh, you're not even black. Like, oh, you don't listen to this or oh, you don't watch this. And like, you know, I'm blacker than you. And like my white friends that would say things like that. And they were just joking and throwing it off to the side. I had, you know... There's this one, this story that I've I've told a few times, and um, when I was working at a bar, this girl came in, and um, I'm not going to, I don't like to say the word personally, I don't feel like it's mine, um, but she used the N-word at me, and not saying it to me, but referring to someone who had stolen the gas cap off of her car in a Walmart parking lot, and... Uh, and did she say this to you or in general for people to hear? In general for people to hear, but it was directed at me. Not that yeah, one is I was, worse it was than a bar. the other. I was a bartender right. and she was talking to sure. me, but also like, you know, she was with this one other person. Um, and I reacted to it. And I don't remember exactly what my reaction was where it was like, oh, my God, like, why did you say that? But I know that I reacted because the what she responded with, like, oh, my God, at least I'm not even I'm not talking about you. You're like not even black. You're one of the good. ones. Yeah, you're one of the good ones. That was exactly what she said. And that's why I'm titling my next book. One of the good ones. Oh, that's a fantastic <laughs> title. Yeah, that's already it's already my title. Um, But it's it's what I'm working on, because like because after that, you know, when I tell that story to and this is especially when I was telling the story in 2020, I would have so many of my white friends like clutch their pearls like, oh, how could someone ever say that to you? And I was like, you don't understand. I guarantee you, you've said something along those lines to someone before, you know, um, telling like, uh, like one of your black friends how articulate they are. Right. Because you don't say that to white people, right. you know, that's not something you, that people say to white people. Right. And you, you'll and see it, sometimes on talk shows, mm-hmm. uh, you know, somebody who's young and black and and famous, they'll ask them, so what are you doing with your money? Oh, yeah. What? Exactly. Right. Like, what is that about? And but at the same time, this is so common. And the reaction of like, oh, my gosh, how could that like, how did you deal with that? How did you handle it? That's a that was a part of being me, like my life. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like after that happened, I stepped outside. I smoked a cigarette. I came back inside and continued the conversation. I didn't blow up at her. I didn't fight her. You know, I just like, oh, that was weird. I don't like how that feels. But I just went out and smoked and came back. It's a, it's a an occurrence. It's something that happened. It's something that stuck that I remember. Um, but, uh, what I notice a lot about a lot of these, these, um, these issues as they start to arise is that you have a lot of people that are standing on uh, standing up and saying like, I'm on the right side of, of this argument. I'm doing this the right way. And how dare you do this? And people are so unwilling to look at themselves mm-hmm. and see like, where am I guilty of this? I'll share, I'll share uh, one with you. My girlfriend and I went to see uh, a movie this last weekend and we were standing in line and we were on Lancashire Boulevard, mm-hmm. and there used to be a great soul food restaurant there. And I was saying to my girlfriend, I really wish this restaurant hadn't closed because I loved it so much. And she said, what is soul food? And I was like, well, it's like a, a southern comfort food. And then I was like, uh, that uh, is popular with with black people. And, and I could feel myself getting nervous mm-hmm. because I didn't. 
know if I was saying it the right way. Uh-huh. And there and I resisted the temptation to more quietly say mm. that's popular with black people because I hate <laughs> when pe- white people do that. Sure. Yeah, there's a black lady that just moved in next door. <laughs> but I I uh-huh. did not feel I, I felt very uncomfortable mm-hmm. with the fact that I felt uncomfortable mm-hmm. not knowing if I'm doing this right. Sure. So that discomfort. Yeah. I love that. I think that that discomfort is a beautiful place to be because it allows you to, it, it forces you to look inward and to think and to have a moment to reflect rather than just like react or just assume that like the way that you're saying something or doing something is like right. automatically the right way. I love that actually. And I know that that's well, very I, uncomfortable. I, I, but and yeah, you wish I wish you, you would have been there to yeah. say, well done. <laughs> but I'll say now, well done. Well done uh, for being uncomfortable and for allowing yourself to be uncomfortable and for remembering that moment and like looking back and saying, like, what, why don't I feel comfortable with this? Why do I feel icky saying this? That's great. And those are like, <laughs> those are answers that, you know, are like, it, it's not, it's funny because I want to say, like, it's not a black and white issue. Um, but it's, it's really not. There's so much, like everyone has their own personal experiences and the more that you allow yourself to be wrong, like that's my favorite thing um, that's happened in like the past like eight years is that I've, I've had to really ask myself often, like, what if I'm wrong? And I'll like play that through, you know, what if it's possible that all of the like, the entire argument that I have built up in my head for why I'm right in this moment. What if everything that I've collected is actually just proof of me being in denial? <laughs> and how long do you hold on to that thought that you could possibly be wrong? A, a I, healthy length of time? I don't or? keep it just to myself. I will bounce it off of someone else. Good. And and in the way where I'm not saying like, hey, this is all of my evidence and trying to like mm-hmm. sway the jury one way, like being honest and saying like, I feel like this, I'm uncomfortable with this. Was that a sobriety tool you learned? Yes. Um, it was also something that um, kind of popped up <laughs> before I ended up in, in any sort of like recovery or doing any sort of work. Um I was in a, a Facebook group that I got kicked out of for saying some things. And it was a group of women of color in Los Angeles. And I got kicked out of it because of some things that I said. Really? And I had two options. I had the option of either going to a big group of white women online and being like, can you believe that these black women did this to me? And like, sure, they would probably hold me and coddle me and tell me, oh, no, no, those women were so wrong. You deserve to be here. And I, you know, maybe have maybe would have had a very different experience with my life. But instead, I had a moment of reflection where I'm like, what if I'm completely wrong about all these things that I believe about the world around me and my place in it? Not taking into consideration the fact that like, I, I hate saying this, and I'm saying it into a microphone. Oh, God. Mm. I'm pretty. I have pretty privilege. I get away with a lot of stuff that maybe a lot of other people wouldn't get away with. And so the way that I operate through the world is going to be different than a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm not like a cross-section demographic. of I have no right to be speaking on behalf of anyone but myself. And if I am challenging someone to um, to do something, I have to be doing that myself. And also if I'm challenging a uh 
an idea like I'm trying to come up with a good example. Um, I mean, even I'll just go back to, to this thing with the group. Like if I, I could hold steady and I could hold fast right there and I could say like, I'm, I'm right. And, uh, and allow myself to be right in this entire group of women to be wrong. (laughs) Maybe that's possible. Sure. Sure. Um, but the odds of that, it's kind of along those lines of like, if you run into more than three assholes in a day, maybe you're the asshole. Um, and yeah, like what if it's actually me? What if I'm the problem? <laughs> and it's a lot easier for me to be the problem than the rest of the world to be the problem, I found, um, because the rest of the world isn't going to change to make me comfortable. So what if I just, what if I sit back for a moment and say, okay, maybe I'm wrong in this. Um, and maybe sometimes I'm not. That's possible. I've had a, some instances where I've been, you know, actually in, in in my mind standing up for the right thing and still standing there. But oftentimes I will be hypercritical of myself too. Not in a way that is necessarily damaging all the time. Sometimes it is. I sometimes wonder if the cult of winning and being number one mm-hmm. in American exceptionalism, that whole mindset, I sometimes wonder if that makes it more difficult for us to be able to be comfortable with somebody not believing what we believe Mm. and to that, you know, to not have to dominate an argument, but to say, you know, with love and compassion, let's agree to disagree. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a friend who just came back into my life who is the polar opposite politically Mm. of me. And we have agreed to disagree because I loved this guy before he um, went that route and I value him as a person, um, and I'm willing to uh, have that just be a part of our lives that don't intersect mm-hmm. and to come together on the parts that do, because I sure. know he, he has a good heart. I I hear that, and I think that that's a beautiful thing to be able to come back together in, in those relationships. And any time that you can welcome someone in with love, it's more likely that you can find common ground. Um, the only reason why I don't have a lot of people in my life that have opposite political opinions as I do is that it tends to be their political opinions, um, are directly affecting my ability to live and be a woman of color in the United States of America. Um, I think you should go for a threefer and, uh, (laughs) become disabled. And then really. Right. Right. And like not necessarily, you know, a heterosexual woman of color either. And like, I, you know, okay, so you don't believe that I should have have rights or exist. And okay, cool. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's usually a bit of a problem. But what's interesting is that I have a lot of I have a lot of um, people in my life that are uh, that have asked me in the past, um, like, do you like, do you think that I'm. Do you think that I'm racist because of this? And I find that to be such an interesting question because they're looking for an answer. It's something that in themselves they're having this uh, this discomfort with. And I can tell you that almost every time someone has has approached me with that, um, the answer is yes and in a way that I don't necessarily believe that a lot of the isms are um, 
are steadfast adjectives. I believe that they're um, an they're an adjective that has to do with an, with a uh, a point in in life or maybe a specific belief. I would never. I mean, unless someone uh, uh, considers their identity to be like homophobic or a racist or right. misogynist, um, unless someone's entire being is wrapped up around that, uh, they'll do. They'll have certain beliefs that I believe that you can you can categorize in that way. Um, but I would never point at someone and be like, "That's a racist," unless they like really want to be. <laughs> But someone who will call, you know, will ask, like, did I do this? It's like, is this thing that I'm doing, like, is it discriminatory? Is it like rooted in racism? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. But so is the majority of our entire system in the United States of America. So, like, go easy on yourself and I mean, allow yourself to learn. When you when you just think about the fact that that up until maybe a decade ago, it was just among the general white population <laughs> accepted that Columbus had, quote, discovered America, unquote, <laughs> while right? people were here like the Chris Rock bit yeah. about that. How the fuck can you discover a place where yeah. people already are? Exactly. But it it never occurred mm-hmm. to me. I just accepted it mm-hmm. because you give the school books when you're a child the authority, yep. you take it in, and, and you probably don't realize mm-hmm. how that devalues somebody who isn't white. Totally. So you have now a country that as a society that now has access to a lot of people's stories beyond the ones that have been pushed in front of us for Mm -hmm. decades. Um, We have we have multitudes of stories of people who have experienced all sides of American history. And yet we're still expected to believe the one that has been the dominant one, which is the one that we win all the time. We did everything right. And exactly as uh, things were as exactly the way they ought to have been. (laughs) And why do you hate America? Why do you want to destroy America? I often, Oh gosh. Yeah. (laughs) I often think one of the biggest hurdles to us progressing uh, emotionally as a country is that in so many families, there was such bad communication that disagreements or mistakes, mm-hmm. air quotes, were weaponized. Mm-hmm. And so to someone to disagree is we're on a football field now mm-hmm. and there is no, you know, it's win or lose. Yes. And to admit that America might have been insensitive mm-hmm. is to mean that now I have to agree that America is a terrible place or whatever idea mm-hmm. I think it is that you have in, in your head rather mm-hmm. than to just reflect. I mean, the death of contemplation and reflection mm-hmm. is, uh, I don't know if it's getting worse. I I, I, I don't know. I, I really believe that when I personally, and I'm not going to speak for everybody, but when I when I personally allow space for myself to be wrong um and when i allow space for others to be wrong and allow like a space for forgiveness it makes it so much easier for someone to admit that they have been wrong or for me to admit that i've been wrong yeah and this goes directly back to what we were talking about with like the idea of canceling um what if we allowed people to be wrong and to be like if it's as if if we can hear your voice and you say something incorrectly, we have the right to slander you and to run you through the mud and to ruin your life. And I don't know when we decided that everyone who is in the public eye has to be a deity um, in order to be respected for their craft. Um, I do believe that obviously there are 
uh, <laughs> so, so many people that ought not be in the public eye that are just there <laughs> because we are, we are sick. We are sick. Um, we want to see, we, we, you know, slow down to see the car accident on the side of the road. And a lot of people have made a living being that accident. Um, and anyway, that's off on a tangent, but what I'm, what I'm, I'm mostly getting at is that I, I know I have a lot of hope and I have hope only because like the world is what you pay attention to. And my experience, the people that I interact with when I'm trying to be the best person that I can be um, and also allowing myself to, to fail and to make mistakes and I allow other people to make mistakes, you know, not, not judging someone based on one thing that they did that made me uncomfortable or one bad thing that they did and allowing them to have the space to admit that they were wrong. Um, the hard part is when they don't, um, that really is the hardest thing. And I think that we can all sort of identify with that. And I wonder if we can also identify with the part of like having something that we're holding on to and don't want to be wrong about, mm -hmm. um, that we don't want to admit. But that communication is so necessary. And um, for, why, why we don't teach that to little kids. Yeah. How to express your feelings in a way that doesn't put someone on the defensive. Yeah. It, there is no greater tool. Oh, my no gosh. No greater tool. Can I tell you that in a recent relationship that I've, I mean, an, an, uh, uh, like an acquaintanceship, I guess, um, that I've had, I've, I've been practicing being super honest. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. Um, and it is uncomfortable. And this is the Terrifying. first time in my entire life that if some, like if, if this person is doing something that bothers me, <laughs> I say, Hey, do you have a moment? Um, because I'm having a moment and I, this is, I'm really irritated right now. I want to be completely honest with you. I'm irritated and this is why. And I will also add to that, like not saying like you're doing this thing and it's pissing me off, like so, <laughs> in a gentle way, right. <laughs> but right. saying like when, when you do this, this is what it activates within me. And I'm using all my Brene Brown skills to say, like, this is the story that I'm telling myself. Is this true? And what is your side of the story? And like, and opening up that communication. Oh, my gosh. It like releases so much and so it much. allows so much ease. Um, and the amount of shame that we carry around all the time that I carry around. I don't want to keep saying we, but that I carry around all the time of whether or not I deserve, like, do I deserve to be here right now? But you asked me that question and I was able to say, yeah, I have imposter syndrome pretty bad right now. <laughs> and, oh, wait, yeah, I feel a lot better after saying that. Um, I don't know how anyone can operate through the world assuming that everybody else is wrong and they are right. Um, I'm sure I've done it's it. It's exhausting. I'm sure I've done it. Um, I also, I heard this incredible thing today. Um, is I... I've had many, many fears in my life and of like when I've been the bad guy and after doing like deep like work and, and inventories on myself and looking at where I've, where I've been the villain in my, in someone else's story, whew, it's icky and it feels really bad. Um, it's awful. <laughs> those are professional terms, <laughs> <laughs> but it feels awful, but <clears throat> But the, the thing that made me the villain so often was not being able to be honest and not saying how I really felt, allowing it to be easier for me to act in a way that was causing harm rather than for me to admit that I was wrong. It, it's when we subjugate our needs 
to try to keep everybody happy. Our asshole is going to come out somewhere. <laughs> Our inner asshole. You, yeah. you know, better to just find the right words to express what you're feeling and risk somebody think you're being an asshole mm-hmm. because you stuff that, you know, you're going to start cheating on people mm-hmm. or exploding in traffic mm-hmm. or, you know, doing doing something. It's going to come out. It's Cutting. Come out. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's my personal experience. Self-harm was a massive part of my story. And um it was something that I... And by I, the way, after just sharing mm-hmm. that, now I'm like, oh, you shouldn't have said cutting. Oh, no. That's, I, you have no experience with that, Paul. What oh, that's great. What are you talking about? You've opened you're up gonna, the opportunity for me to talk about it because okay. I do have experience I, with it. I all of a sudden got no, super nervous. No, but you're, you're okay. spot on. You're okay. spot on. All right. Um, that was a massive part of my story. Um, I Starting when? Uh, when I was, I think, 11 or 12. Um, when I was 11, I had a lot of things happen. Um, a lot of stuff happened that, that year that was really hard and I didn't really know how to handle any of it. And I had some bits of rage. I had some bits of, um, like, it's so funny. I, in my show, I'll, I'll tell you the marshmallow story then. Um, but I used to sort of use marshmallows like drugs. (laughs) Boy, if you're going to pick one thing, <laughs> that's it. And I assume you're talking about toasted because yeah, yeah, yeah. Raw, I'd get a big lighter. I'd get a yeah. big lighter and I would like burn it, like hiding yeah. in my bedroom, burning marshmallows. Like, yeah. like, <laughs> like anyway, it's, it's, it wasn't drugs at the time. I didn't, I didn't actually start doing drugs until much later. Um, but you know, when I was 11 and I um, had done something um, to hurt uh, my, I have a little sister and um, without without having a moment to like realize how angry I was about something, I hurt her. And I saw the tears well up in her eyes and I saw what I had done. And, um, and it was, you know, I just like, I, I hit her with something and, and it, it, the, the place that it hit me in my body, like I knew how, like I, I, it was instant shame. I'm a bad person because I did this. And, I can't believe that this is something that I would do to another person. I'm so horrible. And she was saying these things out loud to me, you know, and cause she's so, she was so young and she didn't, you know, neither of us like knew better. Um, but my reaction, because I couldn't take it back is that I was going to hurt myself because I had hurt her. And that made sense to me. And anytime that I felt like I had done something wrong, I started self punishing physically. And so, um, it was it was not necessarily cutting is usually burning um but like you know burning myself where i just needed to feel that pain and also it wasn't that i wanted to like show my scars to the person that i had hurt to see that i hurt myself you know um but that was a thought that i wish that i could have done but i knew better somehow where i was like that's not going to work <laughs> like mm-hmm. um so i did i didn't i wasn't blatant about it um but it got bad. It got really bad. And, and um, right before I moved to L.A. was the last time that I'd done it. I was in a relationship and I was so frustrated. And I didn't I mean, it was like it wasn't lashing out at them. It was just there was something that needed to come out in me. And I hurt so bad. And I didn't know how else to let that hurt come out. Um, and I had I had scratched myself really deeply on my shoulders with, with my own fingernails to the point that I had I had deep scabs when I moved here. Um, and 
it was just this place of this, this so much feeling and and also in that situation like knowing that i was in the wrong place doing the wrong thing um and actively without trying to hurting someone that i loved a lot and um and that, that, that's yeah. what made you scratch mm-hmm. scratch yourself was... was, but also that's that's me now looking back on that and and telling you what i've analyzed and what i've figured out about it because at the time i was just in so much pain that i just did it you and know I, and i would imagine there was probably more in the well mm-hmm. than, than Abs- just there that there's so much and this right. is also this is before before getting sober and before like unpacking a lot of my stuff and um you know, even in like the the way the places that I have deeply unpacked, there's always so much more. Um, my my mentor is amazing uh, in talking about this. Is that she will? She says, you know, you can clean off the to- the top layer of a pond until it's crystal clear, but something always rises up. More will always grow, and so you have to keep cleaning it. You know, it's like it's a it's a constant maintenance. Um, but before I was able to do that first, like deep clean and really look at everything, um, there was so much that was in there that like just showed up sometimes. And that's a scary thing to, to that's a scary place to be in your own body when, you know, I can be in a blackout and do something that I would never, ever, ever do sober. And waking up from that and being like, how did I, how did I get there? Um, but that's, you know, something that I was stuffing down so far and did not want to ever address that needed to come out somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. I did give up the self-harm before I quit drinking, though. I would, like that last time was right before I moved to L.A. And I haven't done it since then. Good for you. Um, and not for not wanting to, <laughs> but finding other ways. Um, and while, you know, recovery from... Um, from drugs and alcohol has been a massive part of my story. It's also like uncovered other things that are going on with me. How, could, how could it not? Right? I mean, it's the, <laughs> as we say, it's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, there's there's a sinkhole of fucked upness. Um, it's deep, and and there's so much that's underneath there, and I've needed to get a lot of help with that. You know, I've had like two different therapists. I have a new one now. Um, that I just started working with and that um, I'm going to be seeing again really soon. And, and you know, finally, like, getting a, a diagnosis that I didn't, like, have before, that I never understood, and it finally, like, put everything together for me. Are you comfortable you know? sharing? Um, sure, border, uh, borderline personality disorder. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, um, I'm glad you mentioned that mm-hmm. because I know a lot of the listeners who deal with that mm-hmm. feel very alone. They feel yeah. very ostracized. Yeah. And, uh, and there's a lot of stigma around mm-hmm. it, you know. There as, is. As you know, the trope is... Uh, the crazy ex-girlfriend? Yeah. Crazy ex-girlfriend <laughs> from Fatal Attraction. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. And, you know, oh, man, there's so many ways that it, in my drinking, really manifested. And, um, and you'll see a lot of it play out, like, you know, in my show as well. It's something that I, I write a lot about because the feeling of of being ghosted i've almost killed myself a handful of times over not getting a response via text message like who does that someone with borderline <laughs> you know um i have you know wanted so many times like i'll get into a place where i'm just ashamed for being for existing mm. 
but yeah, you know, there there are so many ways that it's that it showed up, and and self harm is is a massive one. That's a really yeah. big one. Um, suicidal ideation, which I've uh, have <laughs> plenty of experience with, um, and also acting out sexually. And um, it's interesting because I've had a handful of like professionals, you know, like that know a bit about my case. Um, like ask me if I experienced like sexual trauma as a child. Mm-hmm. And to my knowledge, no. But I, I've walked through the world with all the signs of it, apparently. Mm-hmm. And Borderline really ex- like sort of explained that for me where it made it, made it make a lot more sense. Um, was, was there a sexualized, sexually charged atmosphere that, mm-hmm. that you grew up in? I will say that it was never something that was necessarily taboo for my parents to talk about. Right. Um, <laughs> for instance, yeah. I guess what I'm asking yeah. is like jokes that uh, you wouldn't, that are inappropriate for somebody that age or porn mm-hmm. being left around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Because that's that's another one that I've discovered through doing the surveys and being in certain yeah. support groups that you don't have to be touched mm-hmm. for nudity and sexuality to become weaponized mm-hmm. and to be viewed yeah. as leverage. I'd... And I'm not trying yeah. to no. play the psychiatrist here. I'm more just <laughs> just curious. Absolutely. No, I hear that. I mean, um, it was, yeah, it, it, in a lot of ways it was a, a round. I wouldn't necessarily blame my, my parents or my character. Well, I had a, a babysitter that showed us porn when I was like four years old. And um, I remembered seeing it and like that, she thought it was hilarious. I think she had a friend over and she thought it was really funny um, mm-hmm. to show us something. And she, it was this like, it was a pretty graphic scene and I had no idea what I was looking at. I was so young and maybe, and maybe I was six, somewhere around there. Um, but it was like one of uh, like an early memory of like mm-hmm. this, of a babysitter showing me that and like having those like visuals, visuals, I guess. Um, you know, like scrambled channels on TV or something like mm-hmm. just like being curious about it, but never was there any like physical. Right. Yeah. Nothing so, like that. So mm-hmm. it was something I was exposed to at a young age. Yes. Gotcha. Which I, I believe can make a real imprint mm-hmm. on a on a brain. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think things mm-hmm. that that are anxiety inducing um, there's a great book by a guy named uh, Jack Morin called uh, The Erotic Mind. And one mm-hmm. of the things he talks about is that th- the the brain, when it experiences something historically uh, that was traumatic or kind of loaded with anxiety, our brain has a way of compartmentalizing it and sexualizing it um, as as something, some area of it becomes a bit of a, a a turn on it kind of gets fused into mm. our into our sexuality and it's our brain's way of trying to make sense of it and so many people who were raised in sexualized environments or experienced sexual trauma feel uh so frustrated by the fact that their sexual fantasies or sexual compulsions aren't in line with their morality and in his book he mm. essentially says is it is the hurdles, the moral hurdles with what goes on in our mind of, oh, my God, I don't want to be 
turned on by that Mm -hmm. is the very thing that makes it intensified. Interesting. Yes. It's not in spite of it. Mm -hmm. I feel this way. It's there's a correlation and this one is a bit a bit graphic, but Mm -hmm. I think it half of this half of the podcast is people filling out anonymous surveys and sharing their deepest, darkest secrets. And I've read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds where there just seems to be such an obvious link between what happened to mm-hmm. them and what their biggest turn on is. Mm-hmm. And the one that I will never forget is this guy, um, what, his babysitter who had red hair mm-hmm. would make him uh, finger her. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that he can come to is watching Pornography where a finger is being inserted mm-hmm. into red pubic hair, a woman okay. with well, red naturally. pubic hair. Yeah. And and I have seen and read so many of these and I probably share it too much on the on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. But I know that there are so many people that are suffering in shame mm-hmm. over their sexuality and what turns them on. And yeah. I and, and I just want to shout it from the from the mountaintop that there's nothing wrong with you. It's what mm-hmm. we do yeah. with it that yes. that matters. And and how you can how you can share that with you know with a trusted partner like can bring you closer yeah, together. Absolutely, absolutely. Fe- feeling seen yeah. and accepted when you think like oh I'm kind of weird. This yeah. thing turns me on. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I I totally I totally agree with you on that. And it's it's really interesting how something for me is that is so so important is a feeling of of safety more than anything because so much of my life was not like so much of my like sexual experiences um in my like I guess not formative years but in you know the beginning of my experience when I was like 18 and 19 um like I have been like I was I was raped twice in a year um, at 18, two completely different situations. One of them when I was highly intoxicated, the other one when I was stone cold sober. And I came up with so many reasons why I was wrong in that situation and beat myself up for it. And um, like never wanting to be like close to these people and anything. But like my initial my immediate follow up after that, those things happened was I became extremely promiscuous. So and I you used, know how common that is, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Okay. So I used my, like, alcoholism. Like, I would just, like, okay, I'm going to get, like, a couple of drinks in me, and I'm going to pick somebody out, and I'm going to say yes to that. Because it's so much easier for, like, I, I like what's the point of saying, no, they're going to do it anyway. I'm going to say yes. And finding somebody at the bar and saying, like, I'm going to get him. And then taking them home or going home with them and having a horrible time, you know? Sure. Um, but still, I did it. That was me. That was my decision. I chose to do that. Time and it control. was a, it was a, exactly it was a way of of this very perverted empowerment for me. Um and you know, since like unpacking a lot of that and really looking at it and and have it like my heart I I do a lot of self-parenting with myself from very very young. Um but when it comes to like that version of me, when I'm like 18 and 19, she and I still have a little bit of a relationship that we need to build, you know, that needs to get stronger because I still have not necessarily shame around it. I'm I'm aware of the whys and I have I have some compassion, but I still like there's still a lot of like pain. Like it's a sharp thing to think about. Um because it had an effect on somebody else or because you weren't being true to yourself. 
No, be- it's it's mostly because or I... Or some other reason. Yeah, no, it, it was because of that. And also, um, I had a lot of people in my life at that time that really, really, really did not like me and got really upset with me. And to this day won't speak to me or have since forgiven or whatever, but... Um, but I burned a lot of bridges and I, I honestly, I don't know how, and I don't remember it. And I know that my relationship with myself back then, I, that whole from 18 to 23 is so blurry. I was so drunk (laughs) the whole time, you know? And so thinking back to that, like trying to remember, like, I know that I was being a bad friend a lot because I did not prioritize my relationships with people that loved me. I needed somebody's new attention. I know that. Um, or I would like put somebody as like, this is the pinnacle of the person that I need to get. Uh, I need to get their attention. If I do, then I win. Mm-hmm. And I had a, a really rough situation when I was um, 26. Actually, I wanted to, to talk about this. I had um, there was a guy that I had had like a flirtation with. And I think I spent the night with him once and we like made out. And I thought he was so hot. And he was in this very popular band in, in the town that I was living in. And mm-hmm. um, and I always like. I had this goal of like, I want him to see me. I want him to like me. And so I had this crush on him and, um, I had someone that was, that was very close to me one night who was like in from out of town come in and saw him and they hit it off right away. And I had to run an errand. And so like, while they were at the bar and I left the bar, this is back when I was drinking, I, um, I left the bar and I come back and I was pulling my car in behind the bar to like turn around to park and my headlights hit them making out in the alleyway behind the bar. <laughs> That's like out of a movie. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I was like, this can't be happening. And I parked my car. I went into the bar. I ordered four shots of Captain Morgan, of all fucking things. I lined them all up. I did them all. I got in my car and I drove to the Hone Bridge in, in Milwaukee. Um, and I got out of my car and I don't remember anything after that. And Your intent was to jump? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I was planning on jumping. I absolutely wanted to jump. I, I wanted to absolutely die in that moment because this person that I, I had idolized, that I needed the attention of, was with this this other person that I care about, you know? And, oh. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a nice yeah. perfect storm of betrayal oh, and rejection. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was bad, but it was also, it proved to me that I have no business being here. And when that happens to somebody, a lot of people will like cry or be upset or be like, who needs that guy? He's just some fucking guy. Because honestly, he's just some fucking guy. (laughs) And it's not about you. It was not about you. Had nothing to do with me. I was not involved in that at all. That's the good news and the bad news. He had no idea that I even had a crush on him. Maybe he did. But I was just the annoying girl that would talk to him sometimes at the bar. I didn't like, you know, this we didn't have I didn't have a relationship with him at all. And that's why the person that I that I had, you know, brought there from from out of town, like didn't realize that that was an like that person's off limits. If you make out with that person, I'm going to kill myself. You know, I'm certain that if she knew that, then it wouldn't have happened. But like that was my plan. Yeah. And um, and I know that I drove to the bridge. And then the next thing that I knew I was driving home, someone had called me. I know I was on the phone for a minute. I don't know what I was saying. Again, I was driving drunk. And it was like three in the morning and um, I finally made it home. And when I got home, I had two friends that were there just to make sure that I was okay. They were also drunk. And I remember telling them both that I hated them 
and that you need to not be my fucking friend. Why are you here? Like, uh, look at me. These are all the things that are wrong with me. I stood in the street that night on the east side of Milwaukee, stood in the street, and I screamed into the sky everything that I had ever done. All with, the reasons, with them standing there? With them standing there. Everything that I hated myself for. Everything. All of it. Drunk off my ass. And slurring and sobbing and, and dumping all of this. And they were drunk and did not care. They didn't, like, I don't think that this stunned them or did anything. Um, but I, like, let all of that out and it didn't feel better. And I went inside. I, um, I, uh, <laughs> I cut myself, but I did. Um, and then I went to sleep and, you know, that person was going to be staying with me and I told them not to like get out, like leave. And, um, you know, it was, it was a really, really hard thing. And I had wrapped so much up in this relationship with this imaginary relationship with this person that didn't meant nothing to me that I meant nothing to. And I think about it and I'm like, what was I actually looking for? I thought that I would win if I had sex with that person. Isn't that fucked up? <laughs> you know, like that would be you're, that you're would asking be winning, the wrong person, right? But like, what what did I really want from them? I wanted to be loved. I wanted right. to be seen. I wanted to be appreciated. But I saw them making out with someone else as being the ultimate betrayal because where I put my worth and my weight was in my physical relationship with somebody else. And and I think when our brains have either been damaged or we just haven't seen healthy intimacy modeled for us mm -hmm. we make the mistake of inserting control mm -hmm. into the pursuit of love mm -hmm. when it's just the opposite it's mm -hmm. vulnerability it's letting go it's revealing yourself and and letting the other person decide whether or not they still want to be with you yeah it, which is terrifying, but the payoff <laughs> is fucking amazing. Yeah. And I get the safety thing. I feel mm -hmm. so safe with, with mm -hmm. my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. I can tell her anything. She's supportive. Mm -hmm. People are probably tired of me talking about this, but <laughs> it's the, it's really the first time in my life that I have felt truly like a part yeah. of a team and that I'm not going through um, that, that I don't have to try to win mm -hmm. anything, that there's no winner or loser. Yeah. There's just an open, hopefully, line of communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. That's so great. I have. Um, but it took yeah. forever to get there. Yeah. So much therapy, so many support groups, so much rage and crying. And I don't know anybody who had an adverse childhood that gets to that place mm -hmm. without, you know, a decade in the coal mine, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the emotional coal mine. The work is such awful shit and it's so necessary and I wish it wasn't. And so much of my, my pain often comes from just wishing that I was quote unquote normal, which does not exist, but that it was easy for me. I want to be a Disney princess. I want to be I want to be like just wandering through the world saying hi to mice and butterflies and I want Prince Charming to come after me and I want to be like, "Oh, yes, there he is." And then we live happily ever after. But what I skip in that part is that I'm either being tortured, I am being kidnapped, or <laughs> 
I'm being killed or put under a spell. There's so much stuff that Disney's really fucked me up to believe that like I have to lose my own voice or be exactly this one thing in order for this for my prince to come love me. Uh, so, so there's like a terrible price to pay yeah. if you're going to. What terrible price does the prince pay? He has to put up with the crazy princess. <laughs> oh, gosh, they're always so one dimensional. What's really beautiful about like actual men is that they're complicated. Um, and, you know, as as someone who's like, I don't identify myself as a heterosexual woman, but I do um, like, you know, in recent relationships have primarily been with men. And I... <laughs> There's a lot of things that I just adore about men. I really do. And and I also believe that in in the way that I was taught just from society, not even from like my parents, but like what society taught me of of what to expect from men, it was like less and less and less and then less than that, less uh, expect less from them. More like you're expecting too much. You're a little bit needy. Expect nice. less from them. Be better. Expect less. And it was always like, oh, you think that he's going to do this? Well, you have to lower your standards because you're not going to find that one. And, you know, something that I found like recently because I'm um, in a very, very, very new relationship. And like for for kind of the first time I was asked, like he asked me this question of, um, have you ever been with someone who keeps their promises? And I my like all of my breath was sucked out of my lungs where I was like, ooh, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I have, um, and I'm, I don't know how good I am at keeping promises. Like when someone says they're going to do something, do they show up? Oh, I, I mean, in a lot, most of my recent experience, absolutely not. No, 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 not at all. Um, but in the situation for the first time, someone says, Hey, I'm going to do this for you. And then they do that thing. And I have no idea how to respond. <laughs> What's the catch? Yeah. I'm like, wait, am I You're supposed to... You just set me up for the ultimate betrayal. Right? right? right. I'm like, wait, is this... Like, and, you know, I've told him, like, I, I've i put you in a situation where I've given you enough power to absolutely crush my heart into a million pieces, and I'm trusting that you won't, so don't fuck it up. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. It's fine. You're going to do great, but, like, yeah. ser- don't fuck it up. <laughs> At, at, at what point, when did you re- receive the uh, BPD diagnosis? Um, that was in 2017. And so obviously you've been in relationships mm-hmm. since then. How do you navigate uh, talking about that with them? As mm-hmm. I would imagine with most people, it's misunderstood, if mm-hmm. not even on their radar. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gotten to know it better and know myself better when I get, cause it's, I, I feel like as I, as I walk through the, through the world normally, because I have so many, I sort of have this, like this spider web network of, of tools mm-hmm. that really keeps me sort of floating. And I will find a, a, an excuse to suddenly like, nope, <laughs> play on, <laughs> like I'm out. Like I, I will find the, a way to end up in my crazy and to be in my deep, deep, deep feelings. And, um, this and the one way of describing it is I'm very sensitive and I have very big feelings. Um, and when I get there, I'm pretty much inconsolable, but there are certain ways out. And, um, 
I really like the analogy of, you know, for so much of my life, I had a super highway from like, you know, it was like the 405 from like wherever I am to absolute chaos or deep pain or wanting to kill myself or needing to hurt myself or needing to drink. Like there was a, there was a super highway, like very fast, easy to get there. I know it. I've been traveling that back and forth for my whole life. Um, and what I've noticed through doing the work and through being in recovery is that I'm building dirt roads where I'm like, what if maybe instead of going there, we just took this other dirt path that we don't know very well into a place that's what if we have a glass of water first? We stop there. Pit stop, just a rest stop. We can get to suicidal in a second. We can be suicidal in like two minutes, but like, let's have a glass of water first. Or um, have- Ice cubes. Do you do ice cubes? No, what's what do you do with the ice cubes? Uh, I've I've heard uh, people who um, have ha, who have BPD mm-hmm. can find it soothing to uh, hold ice cubes and then mm-hmm. throw them into the into the bathtub. Ah, nice. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Little yeah, like little bits of aggression. Yeah, yeah and and like soothe yeah. because I guess the intensity it, but, yeah, of the cold, the cold. Mm-hmm. somehow um, I don't know helps with the overwhelming energy. You know, I've, yeah. I've, heard people or read people filling out surveys about having bpd and Mm -hmm. they say that you know if you're on your your feelings on a scale from one to ten with bpd are 14 Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) yes and some say Mm -hmm. it almost feels like your body's on fire yes like when somebody Mm -hmm. abandons you or you feel you're existentially threatened Mm -hmm. um from rejection etc that it it is all consuming what's really really amazing is that in the past um well uh, I've, I've experienced a lot of it this year too. Um, but it's so, it's a lot less frequent, um, that I'll get into that place. Uh, but the past few times that I have been there, this is so silly. I don't know if these are coping mechanisms or this is just what I do. Um, I lay on the floor. Being on the floor is really helpful to me. There's something about it. And I talk out loud to myself. Um, I do have panic attacks. And when I get into a place where I have a panic attack and it's like all of those thoughts are very, very loud. I had one in a movie theater the last time. It was very embarrassing for me. And so that led to even more. Was it in the movie Panic Room? (laughs) No, you I it wasn't during Bo is Afraid either, which I assume that when I saw Bo is Afraid, I was going to have a panic attack because it felt like a like a three hour long panic attack. But um, no, I had gone to see Spider-Man. And I don't know what it was about being in the theater and watching Spider-Man, but I felt suddenly my age. I felt all a lot of weird shame come up. A lot of very, like, these thoughts of, of that, that just, it was almost like someone was, was whispering in my ear the whole time that, like, um, you have failed at everything that you've tried to do. <laughs> sorry, um, to, sorry yeah, to laugh. Yeah, no, but I you just, get it. The, the, the... Like, just the, it, it, it made it's i'm watching spider-man it's a beautiful film like i'm just like having a nice time i'm there with my best friend and like and i just it was you know that one came in where it's like you failed at everything um like you're 35 years old and nobody loves you how does that like just like these really mean things that started popping into my head and then like the i got stuck on the age thing that it's like why, why are you in this movie theater this movie's not for you you old bitch like <laughs> you know like this and it's i'm 35 like go eat, come on and then but like these things start coming in and like and i can't get them to stop mm-hmm. and at the end of the movie i was like trying to just like breathe and I, they were still going and i was talking to my friend and i just said like hey i'm <clears throat> i'm about to have a panic attack and i'm going to fall apart and I just 
do you mind just staying here with me? And he's like, oh, yeah, he gets it. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> he's very similar to me in a lot of ways. And so um, he sort of sat there with me. And then in my head, I'm like, he's annoyed with you. He thinks that you're acting up. He thinks that you're making this up. You're making this up. You're making this up. None of this is real. You're just being emotional because you want attention. None of this is real. And again, I'm spiraling and I can't breathe. And so I'm like, I have a moment where I'm just like, feel all your toes, feel all your fingers, feel your breath, roll your shoulders down and back, remove your tongue from the roof of your mouth, have a moment, take a sip of water, look around, see if you can find something that's this color or whatever. But then just having that moment and then just saying like, okay, I just need to just feel this. I'm going to feel all this feeling and I just needed to cry it out. The movie, the theater had cleared out by this time. And I had a moment where I just needed to cry and then I took a deep breath. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to the bathroom and I need you to meet me in the theater. <laughs> so yeah. I got up, I walked out and just like focused task, task, find bathroom, task, get to the bathroom, task, go to the bathroom, task, wash your hands. And it's like the very next thing, just focus on the next thing until these feelings sort of like flow through me. And then I'm able to sort of like settle down and it feels like I ran a marathon because I'm just dealing with my feelings. But, um, when things like that happen and like when I get into this space, cause I, you know, li living in my house, I have like, it's me and my dog and, um, you know, I have like close relationships with my neighbors, but like, I don't have, uh, I don't always have somebody there. Right. And so when I'm going through this and I'm getting that suicidal thought that sounds like it's in my own voice, that's like, why are you still living right now? Nobody wants you around. You've let down everybody that's that's ever met you. You are never going to fulfill these ideas that you have of your greatness or, or like you're not that talented. So many more people are talent, more talented than you. Um, you're faking it the whole way. Every feeling that you have is fake. Oh, you're crying right now. You're crying for attention and no one's even here. How pathetic are you? These things. So those thoughts start going through my head. Um, my <laughs> method that I've discovered for myself um, is to first out loud say, Hey, you okay? To me. Mm -hmm. And then I respond whether or not I'm okay. But I just like get into that other part. Hey, you okay? No. <laughs> I cry. And then, do you want to do the dishes? Let's just get up and do the dishes. Or let's make your bed. And talking to myself like a kind parent or kind caregiver. And it sounds insane. And it's like I'm using my acting skills for this. <laughs> you know? it, it doesn't sound insane to me. It's, but I it's, think it's fucking badass. It's, it's uh, you, you know, it's it's stepping into like, OK, well, if I'm faking it, I'm going to get that part of me that's faking it through this. Okay, <laughs> you yeah. know? And like, OK, let's let's do the dishes. Like, what are you afraid of right now? Is anything mm -hmm. coming to get you? And being able to answer and like I'm in my house by myself having a full-on conversation with myself but at the end of it um, I'm also really good at self-hugs do you know what the trick is mm -mm. okay bear hug all the way okay and then you put your cheek my earrings too big here okay you put your cheek in your shoulder okay and you squeeze your arm up to your cheek mm-hmm so it feels like you're but right next to your mouth mm-hmm and then give yourself a kiss on the arm Squeeze in really tight and squeeze your chin down, I, too. I had shoulder surgery. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it feels so good yeah. because when you need yeah. somebody to be there yeah, and you can put your, your hand, your, you can rest your cheek on your own shoulder, yeah. you know that you're there for you. I also do a lot of like hand on the belly, hand on the heart and closing my eyes and just feeling that I'm in a body, feeling that I'm a little animal. Um, that's huge for me. And like, 
Were these all intuitive things that you came up with? Did you learn them? A lot of them, or just picked up along the way from somebody else, you know, like who told me what they did or listening to a podcast or listening to, you know, something. I listen to this stuff all the time. And just when I get into that place, I'm like, what if I just gave myself a hug? But the hugs, that's entirely me. That was me being alone for a long time. And and having a lot of like issues with like abandonment and, and needing that feeling right. of being like a, like heard, felt and loved. Like I need I need to be held. Um, I created a, a higher power for myself when I first got sober. Um, that was uh, 1980s Tom Selleck. <laughs> uh huh. Because I needed like a big burly man to hold me at night. And because I like because otherwise I was just going to go out on the town and go find somebody who was going to hold me at night because that's what that's what I wanted to do. And so I'm at home and I'm sober in my bed and I'm like, I'm not being held. And so I'm like imagining that 1980s Tom Selleck is holding me (laughs) specifically 1980s. Um, And then, you know, just like giving myself a deep bear hug. Or another really, really good one is if you like wrap yourself around and uh, doing this, this is a weird, an awkward one to do in, with people in the room, um, mm-hmm. but grab yourself on the ribs mm-hmm. and then you feel like really embraced. Right. And so that when I was sleeping too, it really, really helped me where I'm like, okay, I'm feeling held and allowing this, this like, you know, voice of a higher power or like my inner self or the part of me that like need that like loves me that I tend to keep down all the time, allowing that voice to just say nice things. Those are amazing. Yeah. Those are amazing. One of the ones that helps me sleep sometimes when I'm the mean voice in my head is telling me you don't work hard enough, you've blown it, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, that whole fucking trope, mm-hmm. is I just imagine that the hand of my higher power, the benevolent mm-hmm. force of love in the universe, whatever you want to call it, then I'm sleeping and it's palm and it's got me <gasps> I love and that. I can just let go and I yeah. can feel my body let let go. That's so nice. Yeah. And that, and that, that's a really good that one. That does help. That does yeah. help. Have you done DBT or are you familiar with Marsha Linehan? I, okay. So I have a textbook and a workbook that I got halfway through. <laughs> the DBT workbook? Yeah. Yeah. But I haven't done it with I somebody. I hear great and things like, about it. I do know that, like, I've heard that you can technically do it on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, it's better to do with somebody else, obviously, and I haven't done it with anyone else. Um, and so when I've, like, after I have an episode or after I have, like, a couple of really rough days, mm-hmm. I get back into it. I, but I made a little, based on some things that I saw in the book, I made a tiny little notebook um that's my in case of emergency notebook and that's where all this stuff is written down so i know to grab for it if i'm at home if i'm not at home i don't have it on me then i have to like practice the things that i already like that i've i know really well um but when i start to get into this place of panic or this this overwhelming fear or someone doesn't text me back and I am, or you know, it's, it's been a long time since I've gotten to that place, honestly. Right. Yeah. But you re- review all the conversations you yep. had with mm-hmm. them, what yeah. you might have said that got misconstrued. Yes. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, and I don't have border, not borderline personality mm-hmm. disorder. So mm-hmm. I imagine it's five times what I feel when I feel that panic of. It's like uh, the only way that I can really, I'd write a lot of poetry. I can come up with an analogy for this. Um, Like, imagine that your entire body is made up of cells that have opinions about you. And that 85% of them fucking hate you. And the other 15 are ambivalent. (laughs) That's a good odds. Those are good odds. Um, I think you're very spoiled. (laughs) Uh, 
and you know it feels like every every part of me wants to hurt me and i also f- fully believe that i deserve it fully believe that i deserve it and it's it become you know i it's it's really hard to call a friend too um because they'll say something nice about me like i you know i love you so much like you're that's not true at all you are really smart you've done these things and i can't hear that no. you just think they got low standards or they're bullshit yeah. yeah and i'm like clearly you don't give a fuck because you're not realizing that i'm actually a piece of shit <laughs> like, you're not hearing me i'm worthless like no why do you why are you giving me worth right now i'm trash you have really bad taste in friends what's wrong with you right. um but it doesn't it's it it's so complicated because it doesn't just stay there. It doesn't just stay in this place that everyone should hate me. It's also like it's the, you know, one hand up pushing people away and the other one waving yeah, them forward. The like the cactus that wants a hug. Yeah, right, exactly. Like yeah. I I need you all the way over there and I want you desperate for my love. Yeah. I I'm going to keep pushing you away and I want you to chase me back a little bit harder each time I push you. Um I don't know how I learned that or where I thought that was okay. Um, but I also become really ashamed of my feelings when I'm really sad. I don't want to share it with you because I feel like I'm supposed to be happier that there's something wrong with me because I think something's wrong with me because I think something's wrong with me. (laughs) That's a (laughs) t-shirt. Um, you know, what's really interesting. This probably doesn't have anything to do with anything, but I wanted to share it with you because I heard something similar on one of your previous episodes. Um, I, when I was a baby at like three months, I was really colicky and I cried nonstop, nonstop crying all the time. And this was in the eighties when parents were like, put them in the other room, they'll cry it out. And so I was a baby who was put in the other room to cry it out. And I have been so curious as to whether or not there is a real correlation between that and the fact that when I cry in front of people, I am so sorry. Hmm. I am like, please, like, don't. Oh, my gosh, you shouldn't. Like, I'm so sorry that you're seeing this or like, don't see me sad. And I'm going to keep all my sadness to myself. All my feelings need to be over here. I'll just, hey, everything's fine. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry. And I'm going to go over here and have a meltdown because I need to do it away from people. And it needs to be controlled and it needs to be small and short. Um, or back when I was drinking, I needed everyone to see that I was crying. Sure. <laughs> I need everyone to love me for it, which like ended up pushing a lot of people away because I would like then fake certain emotions in order to get more attention. And that that natural emotional regulation is not something that I have. Right, which is the core of mm-hmm. the the personality and I disorder. I really wonder if this if there's some correlation between that of like yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's not that my parents never held me when I was crying. Of course they did, but like they would also get so annoyed. Naturally, I'm sure I would too. <laughs> yeah, colicky baby. Like yeah, oh my god, that's going to yeah. be terribly annoying, you know. And I'm again, I I never I never ever want to blame my parents or blame my family or my upbringing for how I am. Not in a malicious way and not in a resentful way. I know that my that no one in my family meant me any ill will. No one wanted to hurt me. And anything that I may have experienced as a result of the way that I was treated um, is absolutely just like, well, that's and that's how that turned out. And they mm-hmm. had no idea that that's how it was going to turn out. Yeah. It becomes my responsibility. It's by no means theirs. Um, 
and I'm not going to put that on them and say they were bad parents or that I had a, a bad home that I grew up in. I grew up with a lot of shit, you know, both of my parents being addicts, like it happens. <laughs> Can you um, possibly digitize that, that little book that, that you have? Of oh, the, cute. So I could share it with uh, the listeners because I know there's a lot of <laughs> listeners who would probably love to add some self-soothing tools to their yeah. to their arsenal. Actually, I would really like to do that. I haven't yeah. thought about that because it's really it's something that's very private and just for me. Whatever but, yeah. part of it you're comfortable. But no, I sharing? would love to because it's it's just really just very nice things to say to someone. Okay. And it's like, hey, I know you're having really big feelings right now. Are you okay? Have a yes. sip of water. Then turn the page. And can the cover of it be <laughs> Tom Selleck's face? <laughs> Specifically the one where he's like in boxers laying in bed with his glasses holding a book and a cup of coffee. It's like the I best. I think I remember oh that Oh my one. God, it's the best photo yeah. in the whole world. I love yeah. it. <laughs> Elise, thank you so much for, for coming by and, and uh, being so open and honest. And I'm really, really glad that we got to talk about um, borderline personality disorder um, because I think it's it's uh, obviously a really important struggle for a lot of people. And there's so much stigma and misunderstanding around it. And um, I know what you had to say will bring comfort to, mm. to other people out there who are feeling alone with it so tip of the hat i i mean if all i can do is share my experience that's it that's enough out of you (laughs) thanks many many thanks to elise and her one uh, one woman show was was great it was uh it was cool it was cool seeing her uh very vulnerable she uh there's some stuff that was really darkly funny uh, she had mentioned, or we had talked about, uh, tips for self-soothing. I want to read, uh, she sent me some of these and we'll post these in the uh, show notes for this episode as well. Uh, she, and, uh, she wrote tips for self-soothing during emotional dysregulation, uh, are vaguely this number one, recognize that I am dysregulated, stepping outside and observing how I'm feeling helps me to separate the feelings slash fear from reality and allow myself to feel them, but without the urgency to act. Number two, talk to myself out loud. Hey, I'm here. You're okay. You're safe. Saying things like this, wrapping my arms around myself, kissing my shoulders, rubbing my cheeks. I can be angry, sad, overwhelmed, but I get to do it in the same, in the safe embrace of myself. Number three, ask myself what I need. Again, out loud, do I need a glass of water to go outside, something to eat? The process of cooking or preparing food, filling a glass of water, etc. is excellent in these times. I cry while I do it. I scream. I lay on the floor if I need to, then get back up. Number four, do something with my hands. Wash a dish, write something down, sweep my floors, take my dog outside. Again, preparing food. All of it helps keep my brain preoccupied. And five, call someone, anyone. Talk to a human being about anything. Uh, And then she adds, if I'm not at home, all of these work, but if I'm in public like a gym or a movie theater and a panic attack comes on, I go outside. The self-soothing or embracing myself and talking to myself to myself is still a major first step. But who cares who's watching? Besides that, I will run around the block or call a friend. Hope this helps, Elise. 
Those are fantastic. Thank you for sharing those. We are going to take a quick break. This is from the fear survey. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself fish on 21% oxygen. Share something you fear. I fear the time between therapist visits when I think of Gracie, when I think of how I could have better explained myself. If only they could hear the conversations I have with them in traffic. Oh man. Yeah. The thought that we're not doing it right. I didn't, I mean, I think oftentimes that's, there, there are two times when I just hate thinking about my feelings is, is when I'm, I'm in therapy and I feel like, oh, this is going to be a waste of time. And it never is. It's almost always fruitful. And the other time is when somebody asks me how I'm doing and I'm so afraid that I'm not going to articulate it correctly that I would, there's an impulse to, to just say, oh, I'm fine. Like, what, what is that? Is that perfectionism? I don't know. It's annoying. I know that. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a woman who call, calls herself self-proclaimed taphophile. I don't know what that is. I could have looked it up, but I didn't. Are you going to shame me for that? She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 30s. Uh, she says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, she wrote, uh, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My parents divorced when I was about seven years old, so my brother and I spent every other weekend at our dad's house. My dad always insisted on giving me a bath. This continued until I was 11 years old, exclamation point. Yeah, that is worthy of an exclamation point. Uh, my dad remarried when I was about 10 years old. I told my mom I wasn't allowed to bathe myself when at dad's house, and it's not fair that my stepsister, who was two years younger, could take showers on her own. Not sure if it counts, but it felt fishy and still does at 37 years old. It should, because that is fucked up. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. I was in a queer relationship and my partner constantly was telling me how ugly I was and her ex was so much prettier and she would tell me, uh, she would tell my family, tell me my family hated me and she was doing me a favor. Wow. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Absolutely none darkest thoughts. I often think of what it would feel like to poison my stepmom, not the one my dad remarried when I was 10. I feel like she is a gold digging bitch and I wish her dead. Darkest secrets. During a hypomanic episode, I would meet guys online and then meet in a Walmart parking lot and allow them to take me back to their place and have sex. No one knows this. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I dream of being taken advantage of, not necessarily raped, but just being completely submissive. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my dad, I would shout at him and tell him how he let me down growing up and what a disappointment he is. I begged for him to get me out of my chaotic household with my mom as a kid, and he didn't let me continue, uh in fear and chaos. You had no place to go, man. 
It's like your dad was creepy and your, uh, sounds like your mom's house was fucking crazy. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I wouldn't wake up every day hoping I don't wake up the next day. Have you shared these things with others? My current therapist is the only one uh, I'm completely honest with about most of these dark thoughts. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels cathartic. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? None of these thoughts make you a bad, weird person. None of the things that happen to you, i.e. abuse in any forms, were not your fault. Abuse is never okay. Any comments to make the podcast better? More survey episodes, please. Um, it's funny, whenever I do an all-survey episode, I feel like <laughs> I feel like I'm failing people, like it's a like it's a cop out. But I always get some people weighing in and saying they love the surveys and sometimes like them more than the interview. So I don't know. Be interested to know what uh, some of you, what your opinion is on that. But um, I want to write to uh, the woman who filled this survey out. I want to strongly recommend that you uh, check out the book Silently Seduced by uh, Dr. Kenneth Adams. Um, I think you might find that helpful and um i hope you can get some clarity give some weight to how fucked up that uh thing is with what your dad did um and you know the home life with your mom thank you for filling that out these are some loves Filled out by our friend, little guy eating good. He writes, I love marinating meat or tofu in anticipation of a future delicious meal. It feels like a gesture of love for my future self. Like, this is going to be so delicious for tomorrow, me. I love grocery shopping with my girlfriend. I push the cart and she tosses things to me to see if I can catch them. The colors, textures, and smells of the grocery store move pleasantly around me and I ground myself through the sensation of her hand in mine. I love soft-boiled eggs on rice with avocado. And I love when my girlfriend wipes a smear of chocolate off my face. I can see so much tenderness in her eyes as she leans in, not an ounce of judgment, I feel cared for. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. These are some more loves filled out by Nancy G. I like how I, I act surprised about surveys that I put in order. <laughs> uh, she writes, I love how my printer randomly comes alive and performs some sort of self-maintenance on its own. I love the taste of warm butter, eggs, cheese, and bread together. Most of all, I love the stillness and quiet when the power goes out during a snowstorm. Those are so fucking great. Thank you for those. Thank you, Nancy G. This is kind of a heavy shame and secret survey. This one actually probably, I don't know if this one could have fit in the 666 episode. Um, but it, it, it's a little graphic. Uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Anya. She identifies 
as uh, bisexual. She's in her 20s. She says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My mom was always too comfortable with being naked. She still is, but I don't really see it as much since I no longer live with her. My father and my stepdad, uh, my mom's husband, were also too comfortable with just being in their underwear, but they've gotten better as I was growing up and not walking around in their underwear, unlike my mom. None of my parents cared about being quiet while having sex. I even told my parents as a four-year-old that my mom's, quote, singing, unquote, woke me up, and they asked me what I heard. My four-year-old self mimicked my own mother's moans without knowing at that age. The adults around me laughed. Wow. From infancy to toddler age, I was often watched by children and adults in my family or my mom's best friend. I remember being at my mom's best friend's house with my brother, my mom, my mom's best friend's kid, and myself laying down in the living room having a sleepover. My mom's best friend and her current boyfriend were laying on the couch across from us. I clearly remember being able to see them, quote, wrestle, unquote. Now, as I know, I was watching them feverishly making out, then trying to discreetly have sex right there on the couch next to us sleeping children. I started to masturbate around three to four years old and touching, quote, the button, unquote, something that made me feel good. I started to perform acts on stuffed animals and jump and humping furniture around this time as well. My therapist and I believe I was molested around this time with no memories of it. I've been having weird things bubble up randomly, and I'm waiting for the day for me to remember some incident with me tragically being molested by someone. When my brother and I were younger, maybe around four years old, we would swap candies with our tongue, just touching our tongues together to pick up the candy. A few years later, we would make out and grind on each other while we were alone at our stepmom's, in the parentheses, my dad's girlfriend at the time. Uh, I remember to this day loving the feeling I would get when we would grind on each other, but hating the feeling of him shoving his tongue down my throat. He would pressure me into doing it more and at times when adults were nearby. I eventually got uncomfortable and told him I never wanted to do it again. He would come up behind me while I'd do the laundry, parentheses, my parents made us start being their maids at a young age, and he would rub my shoulders and ask me if I wanted to play. He's a year older than I am. I also believe he may have been molested at a young age. I think parts of my brain are stuck being that hypersexual child. I am a hypersexual adult now. Uh, she's been physically abused and emotionally abused. All my parents, except for my then stepmom, uh, hit my brothers and I. I remember my father, whenever we needed a spanking, would do it one by one. My brother would always go first. My father made me wait in the room next to them. He would pull our pants down and smack us multiple times on our butt until it was red. I also remember being very afraid of displeasing my parents as they would lose their temper and unleash their pent-up anger on us kids. I learned to take care of of my things and to be the mini therapist they needed. I learned how to please them and get on their good side and be their ear for adult issues. From a very, very young age, I was called an old soul. I was emotion emotionally neglected. 
My mom and stepdad worked a lot. My mom ran a daycare and my stepdad worked far from home. My mom would have to be aware of her her care children and every day I was expected to help. I felt like I was a parent to kids while I was a kid. My parents also left my brothers and I alone often as one of our family members was in the hospital hospital a lot before they passed away. They also were watching a family member that had Alzheimer's until their own death. As you can imagine, eventually things were not about me. And as I stated previously, I was really, really good at not being a kid, but being an emotional support for my parents. I also watched my older brother physically abuse my little brother and was physically abused by him too. He would hit, punch, kick, throw things at us. He would throw my younger brother around. He held me against a wall on many occasions with a knife to my throat. He would smother me with a blanket and made me touch hot objects and burn myself. Wow. Any positive experiences with abusers? I'm very close with my stepdad now as the cycle of abuse was moved to him when my siblings and I got older. I don't know, was moved to him? Uh, sometimes there's typos. He's apologized and accepted how his wrongdoings have affected me. That's good. I don't really know how to feel about any of the adults in my life. I don't really care for any of them, yet I seek the love and attention I didn't really get as a child due to the emotional neglect. I did receive a lot of gifts as a child slash teenager, not all the time, but during Christmas, it was evident after a certain age that my mom and stepdad were replacing that missing love with gifts. I guess some people count that as a positive. I'm also self-sufficient now darkest thoughts. Uh, I'd like to just masturbate all day at home, eat all the foods that would clog up my arteries and fatten up my liver even more than it already is. I'd like to smoke pot until I get so paranoid and anxious that I am in physical pain. I'd like to drink and go to nightclubs and make out with all of the hot people. Darkest secrets. I provocatively kissed my younger brother. I don't know how old he was, but he still had binkies. It only happened once and I feel sick to my stomach and want to kill myself whenever I remember that. I also found my grandma's nudes on her cell phone and a sex toy of hers when I would snoop through her things. I never snoop through anything anymore with anyone. Before this, I found sexually explicit letters someone in my family had sent to their significant other while they were not home. I masturbated to them. I was a child. I masturbate almost every day, and it's gotten to the point where it's harming me. I have pelvic floor issues, and I wet the bed a lot and pee myself a lot. I am completely addicted to eating and masturbating, and I don't know how to get out of those cycles. There are support groups for this. There's all kinds of help out there. And I really, really, really encourage you to to seek them out. Um, to, to open up to a therapist um, about this. Um, these, these are not obstacles that cannot be overcome. It just takes effort and willingness. Um, this one's a bit graphic. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I think about my older brother's dick size and what it would feel like uh, in me and in my mouth. I think about my mother's moans 
and how they were hot to me at the time. I want to make out with everyone to try to replicate the feeling I got when I messed around with my brother. It makes me feel sick to share that. I genuinely don't want to feel this way, but I can't help it. We do not have any control over the things that turn us on. And I'm sending you some love because, you know, it, it it's clearly is causing you shame. And, and <clears throat> you know, there's a cycle to addiction that, you know, when we use drugs or act out or shoplift or whatever it is, we, we do it to not feel what we're feeling. And then we feel shame after doing it. And then the urge is there to do it again to get rid of the shame. And uh, lather, rinse, repeat. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could erase certain things from my memory. My darn dissociation didn't do too good of a job. Have you shared these things with others? I've told some people about my brother and I to a certain extent. It felt relieving to get it out. It's been in my brain ever since I remembered it happened. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel gross and sexually aroused. And that's another common thing is even when we're recounting something that was, you know, disturbing to us, unsettling, uh, even if it was physically pleasurable when it happened, we can become aroused uh, recalling it. So you, you are not a weirdo. You are not alone. Um, what you experienced and continue to feel um, is not just you. I'm sending you some love and a, and a hug. This is from the love survey filled out by came out. Okay. And they write, I love spring. And when all the birds come back, I love waking up in the morning. I don't know what Gracie is chewing. I think she's chewing on her nails. She's giving herself a, a manicure or I guess they'd all be pedicures, right? Um, what is it? What do you call? Yeah. If it's the toes, it's a pedicure. I love waking up in the morning before my partner does and having a quiet morning reading and journaling. I love getting my hands dirty in the garden. I love hanging out with my chickens. It's so therapeutic. I love a hot bath after a day that was just absolutely full of bullshit. So good. And then finally, we're going to end on an awfulsome moment. But I don't really think this one's awfulsome. Uh, this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Hamburger Man, and he writes, uh, After your interview with Stevie C, number 664, you read a survey from someone who attended your live show in Burbank. They talked about how they filled out a survey in person and saw you look at it and put it aside on stage, only to have it read during the next episode of the podcast. You mentioned how you wished you could read everyone's surveys and that sometimes just writing things down either in a survey or by journaling can be helpful in processing and getting things out. I filled out a shame and secret survey earlier this year about something I've never told anyone about and have been wondering if you would read it someday. After hearing you talk about how just writing things down can be helpful, I started to think of about how I should be proud of myself for having the courage to fill out that survey so honestly and for holding the mirror up to myself. I took a deep breath and realized that what I did was important for myself regardless of whether or not it made the podcast. 
the next survey you read was mine. I love it. I love it. Thank you for letting me know that. I appreciate that. Gracie, how should we wrap this up? She is so void of help and ideas. I'm thinking of putting her out on the street until she starts chipping in, starts pulling her weight. Anybody who's out there who's who's struggling and feeling alone, just you. Say it every every week. But I really mean it. You are not alone, and our tribe is out there. It's just a matter of finding them. And uh, never forget that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.